Well, come all, it's my great pleasure to um, welcome you to the German Historical Institute um, to this evening. Um, I'm the director, Christina von Hodenberg, um, and today is the first session of a seminar series which will carry on this term uh, on contested histories. And we have experimented a, a little bit with our usual format, and instead of one lecture speaker followed by a discussion, we will have different formats this term. Um, Miriam Brusius, research fellow here at the Institute, came up with this idea. So uh, we will start um, today with um, several speakers followed by a commentary and a discussion. Then we will have other sessions um, where we will have um, panel debates, where we will have a performance even uh, in, in one case. Um, and uh, But of course all of those um, seminars will be held together by a common academic topic, and that topic is contested histories. And by that we mean um, public histories, um, uh, things such as uh, memorials, uh, museum exhibitions, textbooks, how is history being um, uh, told and sold to audiences and who owns the narratives and how, uh, where are the conflicts in the way that these public narratives about history develop. So today's evening is about slaveries, past and present, challenges to academic research and museum work in Germany and Britain. And I will actually hand over now to Felix Bram, who's a research fellow here at the Institute and works on the history of East Africa himself. And he will chair the debate and introduce our um, panelists to Thank you, Christina von Hohenberg, and also a warm welcome from my part. Um, I have the pleasure and honor to chair today's uh, uh, double lecture. And as Christina von Hohenberg has already said, there will be two talks in a row, about 20 minutes each, followed by a comment, and afterwards uh, the floor is open for discussion. And I will now briefly introduce the three speakers, Rebecca von Malinkroth, uh, holds the chair for early modern history at the University of Bremen. She's principal investigator in a project funded by the European Research Council on the Holy Roman Empire of Germination and its slaves. For the first time, uh, this project investigates systematically the human trafficking of enslaved people in the territories of the Old Reich. If I'm, and if I'm correctly informed, one aim of the project is also to create a database. Professor um, uh, von Malinkroth uh, has also published widely on other topics, uh, topics, amongst others on sports in early modern uh, culture, on privacy and publicity, and on lay brotherhood. Richard Benjamin, uh, our second speaker, uh, since 2006, uh, he is the director at the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool, one of the very few museums worldwide dedicated to slavery. And he is responsible for the strategic development of the museum, the supervision of its display galleries, and the acquisition of museum objects and collections. Dr. Benjamin holds a PhD in archaeology, and uh, he was also a visiting research scholar at the Du Bois Institute for African-American Afri Research at Harvard University. 
Here is also published widely on the history of transatlantic slavery and the challenges this topic poses to museum work, and we will hear more about this later. And Catherine Hall uh, hardly needs any introduction. She is Professor Emeritus of Modern British Social and Cultural History at UCL, and she's also a fellow of the British Academy. Her main books and articles are centered around topics of race, class, gender, and family, the 19th century, Britain and the British Empire, and she is one of the leading scholars who first demanded for radical rethinking of, of narratives of British history in the light of its imperial past and for studying the ways in which metropolitan ideas and practices have been shaped by colonial experiences. And I also want to mention here, of course, the legacies of British slave ownership, a project, a large digital humanities project at the UCL, which was headed by Catherine Hall in this project, and perhaps um, we will hear more about this later, makes use of the vast amount of compensation files. And as some of you might not be aware, when Britain um, finally abolished slavery in its colonial empire, except India, in 1838, slave owners could claim compensation for the loss of their property. And I also want to mention that Professor Hall was part of the consultative group working with the Docklands, Docklands Museum on their permanent uh, gallery on sugar and slavery. So thank you all for coming and joining us tonight. And uh, I now hand over to Professor Mullingford for the first lecture. Good evening, everybody. And thank you very much for having me here. And uh, I just ask you in the beginning to trust me. I, I will come back to the common ground of this uh, session, the which is slavery's past and present. I'm here for the historical part, but uh, I'm not only g going to go back to the 18th century, but uh, I will refer to the general topic. Please trust me. <laughs> in 1764, August William Peter, an African servant at the court of Brunswick, wrote a petition to Duke Carl I in it he requested an increase in his salary or for the Duke to assume the cost of his rent because his running expenses were regularly exceeding his income and he was falling deeper and deeper into debt. Requests of this kind were quite common at early modern courts and very similar in their argumentation. What is striking, however, is that August's William Peter signed the petition as most subservient prostrate slave, August William Peter Negri. I'm not the first in analyzing this petition. August William Peter has already been mentioned by Ingeborg Kittel, Uta Sati, Peter Martin, and Anna Kuhlmann-Smirnov. From these scholars, we learn that he was appointed a lucky by, by Duke Carl I, that he had been baptized Lutheran, that he was able to sign on his own behalf, and that presumably, because of his difficult financial situation, he had attempted to find a job elsewhere. In 1770, the courtly office reports that, quote, Augustus William Peter had returned this afternoon after he had not found his fortune in Berlin and Magdeburg as he had hoped, unquote. Which also hints to the fact that it was rather difficult for people of African descent to find an employment beyond the courtly sphere. Upon his return, he was again employed as a messenger at the secret chancellery. He married Johanna Margarete Friederica, Antrode, with whom he fathered two children, who did not survive the first year of life. In 1783 he retired, and in 1804 he died in Wolfenbüttel. 
Despite of all these details given, none of the researchers mentions August William Peter's self-designation as slave and negri. Although both Kitto and Martin directly quote from the petition, I think that this apparent detail, this omission, is characteristic for the irritation that traces of enslavement practices cause in Germany and thus link 18th century case studies that I want to present to you in the following to questions of historiography and thus slavery's past and present that form the common ground of this session. First, according to the long-standing research consensus, slavery did not exist in the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. Second, Augustus William Peter's living conditions, the fact that he was paid, that his quest to find a job and his marriage do not seem to fit with slave statues. Third, we know from clause and clauses typically used in early modern letters and particularly in petitions that people were, quote, dying in devotion, unquote, on a regular basis without this necessarily being taken literally. In fact, these polite phrases were rather gestures of submission that could be used in a very strategic way. Historians could have pointed to all of this, but instead they obviously preferred to uh, elate August William Peter's say, strange self-description. Through this omission, they underpinned the master narrative that the Holy Roman Empire was not, like other European, Western European powers, involved in slavery and the slave trade a master narrative that can be traced back into the early modern period. As the German territories had only a few short-lived colonies and a slave trading company existed only for a short period of time, the old empire was perceived for a long time as a bystander of the transatlantic slave trade. However, recent research in economic history has revealed a deep involvement of German producers, merchants, ship owners and bankers in the transatlantic slave trade. Furthermore, German soldiers, sailors, medicines, missionaries were employed in Dutch, Danish and British trading companies and colonies, but also acted as plantation and slave owners themselves. And finally, 18th century German global players brought slaves home from the colonies or directly from the African coast or the Asian oceans to the territories of the Holy Roman Empire. These repercussions of the global slave systems on Germany are at the heart of the German slavery ERC project. The focus is not on economic entanglements, but on trafficked people who were often bought outside of Germany as slaves in order to serve as so-called court moors or for other purposes. Not all people of color in the Holy Roman Empire were unfree and not all came involuntarily. Hence, I do not claim that all these persons were enslaved but I want to make slavery visible as a practically relevant option for thought and action in a central European hinterland. With regard to the Western European or Mediterranean countries, this phenomenon is neither new nor surprising. With regard to German historiography, however, I have repeatedly found that this research provokes protest. Thus, the master narrative is still effective. Fortunately, we do, not have to base, we do not only have to base our assumptions on contradictory sources as the ones mentioned above, although these are often the first and scattered traces we have. The 18th century court books of the Dresden court, for example, distinguish between four and temporarily five so-called chamber moors and a list of 22 so-called moors. Within the latter group, an explicit distinction is made between, quote, 10 moors, 
zehn Mohren so keine Sklaven sein, zwölf Mohren so Sklaven sein. So this is a court book, this is kind of account, accounting book for the servants, uh, how much money they are paid, where they came from, and where they uh, went on afterwards. Given the pragmatic nature of these lists, we can almost certainly exclude the possibility that the term slave was being used rhetorically or in a figura figurative sense here. Rather, slave status was probably noted because it had legal consequences and influenced wages. Both groups were paid, but whereas the free ones received eight talers a month from the court treasury, the unfree received just five talers. For the unfree, this was half the salary of a chambermore or a chamber boy and roughly equated the cost of a room heater. Such unfree individuals could probably just about make a living, but no more. And this might have also been the reason why Augustus William Peter got into difficulties. I'm still working on this case, so this is the first assumption that they were just paid so little that they could hardly move. In a later Dresden court book, the so-called Moors are more precisely listed in a separate section. For most of them, that is 13, only the name is given. However, these names point to Italian, Spanish and Portuguese way stations. For a number of others, their origins or subsequent destinations are noted. Basilio Mendes, Pietro Francisco and Peter Puck did not remain in Dresden, but went on to Warsaw, where they, did, where they died a few years later. Moritz and Schimi came from England, before likewise traveling to Warsaw, where Augustus the Strong, as Prince-Elector of Saxonia and King of Poland, maintained a residence too. It is notable that the Dresden court much more frequently organized exotic personnel via Portugal than via England, the Netherlands or Denmark, which are mentioned for other German courts as countries where slaves were bought. And so you, you can see here traces of an inner European trade in slavers, slaves, which only becomes visible because we have here a third country that is not, does not have the direct link to the colonies, but is kind of depends on other European countries or on these individuals who are just going back and forth. For instance, Colin Meyer brought six young people from Portugal via Hamburg. Four of them were 15 years old at the time, and according to the court book came from Cap Verde, India and Costa Dominia, Gold Coast. An 18-year-old and a 19-year-old young man originated from Cap Verde and Angola, respectively. Two years later, two further dark-skinned men came from Portugal to the Dresden court. The legal status of these so-called Moors is not mentioned in any of these cases. But it is unlikely that the personnel was completely exchanged within a few years. All the more as the total number of Moors was almost exactly equal to the sum of free and enslaved servants mentioned in the earlier court books. So the summary that I, that I show you here. Furthermore, almost all Moors came from slave trading Gretchens, although not all were linked to, trans to the transatlantic slave trade. It is therefore important to stress that the early modern term Moor was semantically broader than the term African or Sub-Saharan African, as it included dark-skinned people from different geographical regions, as for example from India. On the other hand, we can exclude Ottoman prisoners of war in this specific case because Chamber Moors were linguistically distinguished from Chamber Turks in the recent court books. That the transatlantic slave trade had an impact on, German, on the German sphere is also documented by attempts of the Dresden court to buy humans in the Netherlands. Thus, Augustus the Strong's envoy in The Hague corresponded with a German merchant in Amsterdam about the purchase of African boys. 
Although the trader praised the beauty of a nine to ten year old boy he had, who had not been baptized and whom he could give him for 40 pistols, the negotiations did not proceed satisfactorily. It emerged that Augustus the Strong did not want to raise children at court, but instead wished to acquire older slaves, which probably led to the above-mentioned purchase of young people. The merchant, however, had no difficulty in finding another Dresden buyer for the boy. If these examples thus document a practice of active slave acquisition via other European countries, and the designation of such individuals as slaves in the territories of the Holy Roman Empire, there are rare cases in which enslaved persons challenged their status in court, and in which slave status was explicitly confirmed. In 1790, the African servant Franz Wilhelm Jonger filed suit against his former lord and owner, the privy councillor Franz Christian von Boris, at the highest court in Detmold for payment of his wages for a total of 22 years. And this is the estate Eckendorf, where Jonger um, lived together with Boris for at least some time. And uh, I think what is important to note, uh, to note also to understand these, the process of research is that at first glance, it was not perceptible that Younger's legal status was disputed here. So maybe we have much more cases of this kind because only when you look at the, at the sources, you see that the issue was whether Boris had to pay Younger his previous salary after assigning him to the Count of Lippe or whether as a slave he had no right to such a salary at all. Boris had bought Younger at the age of about 14 from a ship's captain in London where he had been stationed as a Prussian envoy and from where he returned with Younger to the county of Lippe. The fact that even in the Holy Roman Empire and even in 1789 Boris saw Younger as his personal possession was something he made clear not only by presenting the bill of sale but also by assigning Younger as his property to the count of Lippe. And I quote, According to the bill of sale, the Negro slave Younger, whom I legally and lawfully bought as my good and property, baptized and herewith named Franz Wilhelm, shall be presented and transferred, as he belongs to me as property, into the lifelong service of Lord Count Leopold, to my most gracious Count and Lord, as a small token of my submissive devotion, with any, without any further claim or reservation." Unquote. This very fact was in turn disputed by Younger. He had faithfully served Boris for 26 years, of which, quote, four years as a so-called Moor slave and 22, 22 years as a Christian, as a hairdresser, barber, and table servant, without receiving any pay, unquote. Younger himself therefore assumed that he had been liberated with baptism, even if he continued to receive no wages. After years of litigation, which revealed not only interferences between slavery and serfdom, but also referred to international abolitionist networks, younger slave status was confirmed by the highest court in Lippe. The judges concluded that Boris could not only produce the bill of sale, but that Younger himself had admitted that he had served Boris as a slave for the first four years. Baptism did not, in principle, lead to liberation from the state, and in Germany there was no law that abolished the, quote, rights of servitude here related to slavery and serfdom. In fact, in Germany, the, quote, servitude of Negroes was to be judged in accordance with Roman law, unquote. So it's getting from detailed case studies more and more general. So this is the legal expert they refer to. They refer to Ludwig Julius Friedrich Höfner, one of the best known and most influential lawyers of the second half of the 18th century. 
Höfner addressed slavery on a number of occasions, both in his commentaries on Roman law and in his introduction to natural law. Both legal systems were used as subsidiary sources of law in early modern Germany, when positive German law did not contain any specific provision, as was the, as was the case for slavery. Compared with other Western European countries, such as Great Britain, France, and the Netherlands, this was not unusual. It was not until the 18th century that politicians apparently found the need, also with an eye to stability in the colonies, to introduce explicit legal provisions. Up to this point, bringing enslaved people from the colonies to Europe in many cases took place within a legal gray area. Since according to 18th century German jurisprudence, Roman law took precedence over natural law in cases of conflict. And since younger slave status was explicitly justified with reference to German law, I will concentrate here on this legal source for sake of brevity. Hefner's theoretic practical commentary on Roman law was published in six editions between 1783 and 1798 and was one of the standard works used in legal education at that time. Hefner was not regarded as an innovator, but as a particularly reliable, easily understandable and practice-oriented compiler of the then-state-of-the-art then positions. Bearing this in mind, the first edition of the Theoretic Practical Commentary of 1783 reads, says, and now here are three quotes from Hefner on the slavery of today, and I explicitly just chose the paragraphs where reference is made really to contemporary, to 18th century um, interpretations. Today we have first true slaves in the sense of Roman law second serfs, third free servants and maid servants. True slaves are the Negro slaves and the captured Turks. For since the Turks make our prisoners of war slaves, we do the same with theirs. The Turkish slaves are not likely to be found in Germany now since we have now fought, not fought any wars with, with the Turks for so long. Negro slaves, however, are sometimes brought to us from Holland and other realms. Both kinds of slaves are to be judged according to Roman law. And this is, again, Höpfner on the present use of this matter. Whoever wants to set a serf free shall give him a document called a letter of emancipation. And such a serf is now as free as any other man. The right of patronage falls away with him. But whether this can be also claimed when someone sets a Negro slave free, I doubt that. And believe that in this case, Roman law must be applied. Consequently, the releaser is entitled to patronage rights over the freed persons. And this is the last one. Usage today. The ordinances of Roman law are still valid today for true slaves, as explained in paragraph 17. Whoever possesses a captured Turk or Negro slave has the right to sell him and to appropriate everything that the slave acquires. But he does not have the right over life and death, not on, but only the right to chastise moderately. Roman law cannot be applied to serfs. They are judged according to German laws and customs." Unquote. These statements are retained in all editions up to the end of the 18th century and were only slightly modified in spelling and by adding to the references. In the fifth and sixth editions, Hoefner even added with emphasis, and I quote, I'm not of the opinion that slavery is completely abolished in our land such that a slave who comes to Germany would immediately become free, since neither an explicit German law 
prescribes this, nor can a general habit of this kind be proven." Unquote. Thus, over a period of 15 years, the existence of slave status was explicitly and repeatedly confirmed in the Holy Roman Empire in a widespread and highly praised legal textbook. Slavery was thus regarded also in the old empire as a legal form of unfreedom until the late 18th century. To conclude, the four examples briefly presented here highlight the following aspects beyond their sheer materiality. First, we have ambivalent cases that cannot always be decided in one direction or the other due to a lack of sources or due to contradictory statements. It seems to me the task of a historian to convey this complexity and also ambiguity as it opens the space for new and divergent interpretations. At the same time, the first example shows beautifully how master narrators work intellectually. If we stick to this intellectual process, because I think we will talk about political aspects uh, rather in the discussion, uh, it is observable here that the elements that do not fit or cannot yet be linked to a new master narrative are omitted. They just do not make sense in isolation. Second, as pragmatic sources show, enslavement practices did not exist in the old empire. Its enslavement practices did exist in the old empire and global slave systems thus had repercussions on Germany. Still, research on these enslavement practices is time consuming because of the nature of sources we have to search through, but we find more and more evidence. Third, in rare and exceptional cases where slave status was questioned in court, we can see an explicit confirmation according to Roman law. And fourth, the different places discussed here, that is Brunswick, Dresden, Detmold and Gießen, point to the breadth of the phenomenon, as does a widely received legal literature which confirmed slave status not only in, in individual and, as one could argue, exceptional cases, but also in law studies, legal training and expertise. Slavery was thus thinkable and actionable in the Holy Roman Empire, a legal form of bondage, even if the German territories seemed to be only a hinterland of the global slave system. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Rebecca from Malikot, and we will now hand over to Sir Benjamin. Thank you. Well, good evening, everybody. Well, first of all, can I say uh, thank you for the invitation, Felix, Miriam, Christina, the German Historical Institute, for the uh, invitation to speak this evening. It's always a pleasure to come to London from the sunny north of England. So thank you for having me and putting on some lovely sudden weather for me. Uh, so the title of the paper, well, I think it was the one I gave many months ago, was Museums in a Post-Colonial Society, Issues and Opportunities. Uh, uh, Felix is going to give me a five-minute uh, warning because I'll tell you now there's a good chance this goes completely different to how I, how I planned it because I've been a few hours before we had our event this evening as a, as a museum, as a good museum professional, I popped to the British Museum just for... A busman's holiday, as we say. I don't know, do they have that phrase in, in German? I'm sure it sounds a lot more interesting. Uh, so basically, when you're a museum person, you have a bit of spare time. You go into someone else's museum, and then you can be critical about that museum instead of your own museum. But seriously, it did get me thinking. So I may go off on a tangent, but hopefully that will 
all add to the discussion. But before I go in the presentation, just a, a little bit of context about what I originally wanted to say. So anyway, so since the mid-1990s uh, in particular, there's been a steady and significant increase in the visualisation and representation of slavery and abolitions in various mediums. Popular culture, such as film and television, in museums, the internet, monuments, public reminders, and anniversaries and commemorations. Now, alongside this, there has been the increase in research outputs, courses, and centres of research on the subject of slavery. Now, we've also seen a slower but still important presence within the curriculum, or the national curriculum, as we say in this country, and associated educational resources. Now, Dr Douglas Hamilton, who's the head of history uh, at Sheffield Hallam University, but was involved in the Atlantic Worlds Gallery at the uh, National Maritime Museum, if any of you have ever been there. Uh, he calls this movement, since the 19s, as breaking the silence, and I think that's a very fitting term. And he goes on to note that across the world, representations of slavery have been motivated and appropriated by different groups intent on highlighting either brutal maltreatment and continuing injustice or timely attempts to eradicate it. Now, I've worked with uh, Dr. Hamilton and many other academics since the International Slavery Museum opened on Slavery Remembrance Day on the 23rd of August 2007, or to give it its full UNESCO title, the International Day for the Remembrance of the Slave Trade and its Abolition. Now, the relationship between academia and the often more public-facing world of museums is an important one. Impact and kudos can go hand in hand. Now, initially, when invited to participate this evening, I responded to say that I might be able to give a paper which continued with the increasingly popular vein within the museum sector at the moment in time, that of the post-colonial museum. And although by no means a new theme, and not quite as stark as Dr Hamilton's breaking the silence, it has definitely had, one could say, the volume has been ramped up somewhat. Now, how do museums, their publics, objects, interact in a post-colonial society? How do museum displays and often reappraise contested and traumatic histories, offering opportunities for dialogue on comfortable themes? Now, I could highlight the role museums can play in enhancing social cohesion and making these narratives more diverse and inclusive in a period of unrest and insecurity. Now, I can talk about how museums should not only be platforms for dialogue on decolonizing the past and revolutionize their own collection practices, but also about the possibilities of information and power sharing between publics, communities, and academics. And that's what I'm really going to focus on. So I can do that, but in 20 minutes and probably 15 minutes now, I think the way I want to do that is to tell you a bit of a story about how the International Slave Museums developed our evolution, why we developed, the current work we do, and what our future aspirations are. Now, it is a pleasure to be here today alongside uh, Rebecca, Catherine, who I've met before, Felix and Christina, in this marvellous kind of location. And obviously it's here because of the study of German culture. So I'd like to briefly touch on the connections between the International Slave Museum and not only some German-focused research, but colonial debates too, which we as a museum, this is important, have been drawn into on the account of the interest of some German-based activist groups who have shown an interest in our own development. Now, in 2016, 
members of the Hamburg Postcolonial Group, I haven't used the actual German pronunciation, I think you get to the Hamburg Postcolonial Group, and Africa Hamburg contacted me to begin a dialogue between Hamburg and Liverpool, and the way w whether we would host a contingent of activists who, as they said, were on a fact-finding mission. Now, their interest was how black communities, universities, museums, artists, should work together in cities that are often defined by their post-colonial roots. In particular, they noted when a city is planning memory places or what they described as counter-monuments, which I thought was very interesting. What was the situation in Liverpool on post-colonial narratives, they asked me. How were we as a museum involved? Now, since we opened in 2007, we have regularly been visited by museum colleagues or civic representatives who, from around the world who are not necessarily expecting to find out all the answers by coming to see us in Liverpool. You know, we, we don't have them. But we do have experience of how a city, one with a difficult history that lives with the legacies of that history, how a city remembers, reflects, and indeed, most importantly for me, how we respond to that in a way that moves the city forward, shaping new narratives, not just defined by old ones, not just to be defined by old narratives. Now, an example is the current dialogue, and many of you may know about this already, that's taking place within the Netherlands. A delegation from The Hague looking at the possibility of a Dutch Museum of Slavery, a visit by a Dutch Member of Parliament, and several meetings with a newly formed Slavery Commission in Amsterdam, all have taken place in the past 18 months with ourselves. All seeking out new ideas, preparing for sometimes the pitfalls to a degree, whilst navigating new waters which could lead to a purpose-built institution focusing on Dutch slavery and its legacies. The research, knowledge, experience, community activism are already in place in the Netherlands, but they might just have not navigated that journey together like we have tried to do in Liverpool. But back to my Hamburg-based colleagues who for nearly 10 years had been trying to instigate a citywide discussion on what they call post-colonial memorial practices in both public and private spaces. And they were particularly interested, or so they told me, on whether or not the city should look to change some of the street names that they said glorified German colonialism. And I hope there's some people in the city who are from Hamburg. That would make it incredibly interesting afterwards to have a, as part of the discussion. Now, as one of their visual artists and curators noted to me, if places for memory culture are planned in city spaces, and he was talking about in Hamburg, the politicians should definitely ask us. And I do not see how museums in Hamburg could succeed in changing their presentation to more post-colonial perspectives without participating with the black community. Now, this, as you know, is unique to Hamburg. There are real-time discussions and debates across the world on monuments and public reminders of slavery and colonial pasts and their place in modern society. Now, it tends to be the United States, United States, which has made the global headlines, sadly due to the violence that surrounds the issue in such a polarized racial society, particularly relating to the removal of Confederate monuments. Now, an interesting model here is one that's started in the city of Atlanta, who, with the support of Mayor Kasim Reed in 2017, established a Confederate Monuments Advisory Committee to review street names and city-owned monuments linked to the Confederacy in Atlanta. The commission followed renewed attention 
on markings and street names after the tragic events, which I'm sure you've all been aware of, in Charlottesville. Now, cities in the UK, such as Bristol, Glasgow, and Liverpool, are experience their own moments and movements. This might be something that comes up later in the discussion. Now, in many respects, we could not impart any advice to our Hamburg-based friends, as our own discussion, although an older one in Liverpool, has not itself actually produced any tangible changes to the physical environment of our city. What we could do, however, was show there was an integration of individuals and organisations within the city. And although each might have their own priorities, they were still engaged in the actual discussion. In fact, this city-wide joined-up thinking and dialogue is why colleagues in Hamburg contacted me in the first place, also due to the fact that we both knew and worked with Professor Eve Rosenhaft, who is obviously a colleague of Felix, and who together published, and I've said this, you haven't made me say this, the very important essay collection, Felix, of Slavery Hinterland, Transatlantic Slavery and Continental Europe, 1680-1850. Now, Eve was a founding board member of what is called the Centre for the Study of International Slavery, of which I am co-director in Liverpool. So for me, research into slavery and the hinterlands is an important addition to our own narrative at the museum. But not only because it begins to shine a light on underrepresented parts of that greater slavery narrative, but because such research lends itself to the ongoing, real-time discussions which we as a museum are engaged. So now I'm going to go over and take a little bit of a look through the presentation. So these are some of the questions, uh, and I'm not going to go through all of them, let you look at them, that we discussed as a group many months ago, many months ago, but there were still ideas fresh in my head. Now some of those questions there, I've talked a little bit about the preamble, but I will cover others when I go now through a story and a little bit of history about the museum. I'd like to start with this quote by Izumi Noguchi, who isn't a museum person, he was a marvellous artist, one of the best museums I've ever been to, and I thoroughly recommend it if you're ever in New York, is the Izumi Noguchi Garden Museum. Uh, and that literally is a walk through somebody's mind. Okay, it's a marvellous museum. But I always like this quote because for me it's important. Whether or not you actually agree with that, perceptions are important. And whether members of the public think that, makes a difference to how we as museums and we as professionals need to impart the information when they come to visit us. So a story. Okay. I see, has this got one of those little points? Yes, it has. Marvellous. Look at that. Uh, all happens down in the south of England. It's great. Uh, so, sorry. so, for those of you, some of you may have been to Liverpool. Probably most of you haven't. Okay. The most visited part of the city of Liverpool now is an area called the Historic Waterfront. It's a UNESCO-designated area in Liverpool. Uh, it has some marvellous buildings, the Royal Lava, Royal Lava Building, Cunard Building, world-famous buildings. And that's just in that area there, okay? That little red dot there, that is that building. Now, that building is called, originally was called the Dock traffic office, built in the mid-19th century. Architect was Philip Hardwick, and uh, Jesse Hartley was the engineer, and Jesse Hartley was the engineer for the Royal Albert Dock, as it's called now, so the big docks in Liverpool. Uh, this picture was taken in the mid-80s, because Liverpool was going through a terrible state of decline at the time. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with 
some of the conservative government's policies in the 1980s when it related to some of the cities in the north. Managed decline, I think, was something as a phrase that was often banded around. And whether or not that was official policy, the city was in, was in decline. So this building now, it's very important because it comes back into the story. So the dock traffic office, but it's now called the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Building. And it's been owned by the International Slave Museum for nearly 10 years now. What I say, not just to people in this room, but what I say to people who I work with, to people in my team, I always try to put the International Slavery Museum in a much longer narrative. Because if you do not understand the discussion that was taking place in Liverpool, and I do believe this is something that follows for all cities, whether it be Bristol, Glasgow, and to some degrees London, Museums don't just appear. There's a narrative to why those appear. And in Liverpool, I don't expect you to know many of these, but it all leads up to them. So, Liverpool, the metropolis of slavery. There are much greater experts. I'm stood next to one now, Catherine here, who can go over why Liverpool was called the metropolis of slavery, the epicentre of the transatlantic slave trade. And I'm not here to talk about that, because most of you will know that that was the case, okay? But that's the context to this. And the International Slavery Museum is on the Royal Albert Dock, sits outside, roughly speaking, where there were dry docks where thousands of slaver ships left Liverpool. So it's a very important location for the museum, connected to the physical environment. 1919 race rights. There's more than this, but these are key moments. There was race rights in 1919 across the country, not just in Liverpool, okay? But in Liverpool, they were particularly large and particularly violent. And you'll see the link in, in a minute. Charles Wilton College, 1974. That's important because it was one of the first educational institutions, if not the first in this country, that ever had a course that you could take academically on what was termed black history. And as part of that course, there was a module on slavery. Now, very few people will ever know that that college existed. It shut down over 15 years ago now, many, many years ago. But it, had a really okay. but it had a really, really important part to play in the narrative. Charles Wooten was a Bermudan seaman who was murdered during the 1990 race riots. And he was drowned. And he was drowned in the docks that are just a stone's throw away from the museum. Loosen the shackles, I'll talk about that now. Transatlantic Slavery Gallery. We were born out of the Transatlantic Slavery Gallery that was in the basement of the Merseyside Maritime Museum since the early 90s. The Slavery Museum opened in 2007, but we're part of the same organization. So it was very important that we already had a transatlantic slavery gallery within our organization. The city itself is the only city in this country that has given a public apology for its role in the transatlantic slave trade. The mayor of London expressed something a few years ago. But if you go to Liverpool Town Hall, whatever you think of an apology, it's on the wall. So at least the city, civically, has made a statement in that sense. The bicentenary, 200 years, the abolition of the British slave trade. The government, very much in 2007, were pushing projects and organisations that were looking to do work in this area. And the Dr. Martin Luther King building, which we want to be as our new entrance. The enduring impact, only two days ago I was at a public event at the, at the city libraries. This is a community group writing on the wall they're doing an exhibition on the 1919 exhibition. 
And this is what loosened the shackles. I mentioned the book, a report that was produced because of the uprising. This is what it said. We recommend that Liverpool museums and public institutions give a full and honest account of the involvement of black people in the city. Mayor Angelou, that was at the opening of the Transatlantic Slavery Gallery. And I'm going to let you look at that quote. Why that's important is because people like that are important to the way that the museum tells this story. That's Dorothy Kuya. She was the first person who ever gave a tour of the city that included information around the transatlantic slave trade. Not the museum, it was a member of the community, it was community activism. And our annual lecture is named the Dorothy Kuya Lecture. This was from a community advisory group that works with the museum on a monthly basis. And when we were moving forward recently, we asked for their input. What do you think we should do as a museum? Why this is important? Again, because it may seem like it's a big jump from having those kind of discussions to then thinking about how we integrate the work of someone like Rebecca or Felix, but it's not. For me, as the head of a museum, we need to take that new research, that important new research, part of the bigger narrative, but it needs to fit into the audience that comes to the museum, and that isn't always easy. And that's why being an academic and being someone who's a museum professional on the whole, it is different. You want the same thing, but you go about it in different ways. And this is where we want to be in the future. So that is the Dr. Martin Luther King. I say today, I put it in inverted commas because this marvellous rendering that we've just had done, so that bit there and that bit there, basically the 15 million pound bit, which makes it look like this, isn't quite there yet. <laughs> but I like to show this because that's what we're aiming for. <laughs> but we have the building, it just doesn't quite look like that as yet. Uh, so what do we want to do, very briefly? It wants to be a front door. And I'm going to leave that up now, because it's too complicated to go through. But this is a mind map, in a sense, of all the things that we do as a museum that we have to consider. So all the discussions I said in the preamble, listening to Rebecca's work, mentioning Eve's work and Felix's work and Catherine's work. For me, when I look at that as the head of a museum on slavery, this is the type of thing that is included in this. And you may not be able to make anything from that. CSIS there is the Centre for the Study of International Slavery. So my job is to immerse how we bring all the research together and as an output, and we have over 400,000 visitors a year, and you have to remember of those 400,000 visitors, over 90% know nothing about the subject matter at all. And what is interesting for me, and this is probably a big challenge, that's why it's fascinating to be here this evening, and to meet people like Rebecca, people that I might not have met before, because their research is so important. But you're talking about a subject where the research is moving at that pace, and museums, and I go back to the quote of Isamu Noguchi, they're often set in time, and it's about how we're able to kind of broach that. So it's very, very difficult. The best bit of advice, although the probably worst bit of advice I was ever given is when on my first day in the job and the director of the organization said, remember, you're not writing a book. And even though that kind of scared me, because I was all about, you know, you need to be rigorous, of course you do. The point is 90%, like I said, of people that visit us at the moment, they're not there to read a book. 
So it's how we immerse, and maybe this will come out in the discussion now. So how do I take all this fantastic information, and how does that kind of take us on our journey uh, forward? So I think that's about time, Felix. I'll finish there, okay, and leave that up if you want for me. Okay, thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much, Pleasure. Richard Benjamin. And yeah, we will now have a comment by Catherine Ward. Okay, well, thanks again for the opportunity to be here and be involved in this discussion this evening. And I'm just going to try and bring out a few points and uh, raise some questions which hopefully will relate to uh, both what Rebecca and Richard have said. So Richard ended talking about the importance of the academic research, but uh, the problem of how to translate that into museums and uh, how work should be exhibited, etc. And he also talked about the importance of public collaboration. And with his quote about time, He's raising the question about the relation between past and present. And in a way, I'd say that all the outpouring of work, both academic, uh, curatorial, um, political, civic, all the work that's been going on, um, both in Britain and, I mean, I couldn't confidently say this about Germany because I don't, you can correct me if I'm wrong, certainly in France, the reason why all that has happened is because of the post-colonial presence in British, French, uh, Dutch populations. It's the questions that have been raised by the people who are here because we, the Brits, were there. It's because of colonialism and its aftermath in these societies that this huge development has taken place which we've been hearing some bits about tonight. So I'd say that, um, I mean, to, to pick up, first of all, on um, some of the issues that Rebecca was talking about and the insistence that comes out so clearly from her work of the fact that the, the description of uh, the slave trade and slavery as residing in the Atlantic, it's not good enough. What we're talking about is a global system. And that global system crossed Europe, both Central Europe, right into the Baltic, because the Baltic was supplying uh, materials for the, for the slavery business. I mean, what's incredible, as more work is done, is how we see these network of connections right across Europe, Africa, West Africa, and Central Africa, and the United States, what becomes the United States. So, and of course, you can take into that Brazil. It is a global system that was being developed with implications for all those different societies. So, as Felix knows very well, German linen producers, for example, were producing the particular kind of fabric, which was called Osnabur, which was what was used to clothe enslaved people in the Caribbean. So we know about the trade routes from there to the Caribbean. People in Ireland 
were producing the provisions which fed the enslaved populations in the Caribbean and in the US South. These are, you know, the more you know, the more you see how these connections run right across uh, geographical areas and run right across empires. So thinking about it as the French Empire or the British Empire or the Dutch Empire or the Portuguese Empire, actually people are operating across these empires through the trade routes, through the mercantile systems. So, I mean, one of the things that's always struck in my mind from, the, from that uh, work that was done on the hinterlands is the bankers in Bern and the importance of those Swiss bankers to the production of credit because the whole system of sugar production depended on credit. The, the system of debt was very, very, very important and the organisation is very expensive to establish a sugar plantation. And the resources for those plantations came from all kinds of different sources. I've just been working today on um, the current research that I'm doing, which is on 18th century Jamaica. And the, the plantation owners are so preoccupied with debt and the terrible anxiety that the debts they have to carry uh, result in. And there's actually a really extraordinary passage in this major history of Jamaica in the 18th century where Edward Long, who's the slave owner and the author, talks about how the risks that slave owners have to be involved with, you know, hurricanes, famine, wars, rebellion, hardly ever mentioned. They don't like to talk about that. All these different things. And debt, you know, debt is the most important thing. And he says that anxiety kills slave owners on a significant, uh, significantly uh, insignificant numbers. I mean, the, the extraordinary thing of this man whose enslaved workers die, their mortality is one of the major issues that's taken up in relation to the abolition of the slave trade and slavery. And here he is complaining about the dreadful, dreadful anxiety that the slave owners suffer from. Anyway, so I suppose what that takes me into is really thinking about white involvement and all these people, all these Europeans uh, who are involved in this vast network of what we call the slavery business. I was very struck that when they announced the other day uh, this new investigation into um, the connections in Cambridge uh, and the Cambridge University with, with uh, slavery. They talked about it. They kept on saying it's about the slave trade. Well, of course, if they, if they did confine it to the slave trade, they'll probably find there are no slave traders at all involved in Cambridge colleges because the slave traders are a very particular kind of group. If they went to slave owners and all their connections, or if they went to all the auxiliary businesses that depended on slavery, of course they'll find lots and lots of connections. So how you define these issues is very, very important. But I suppose what the project that I've been so involved with, which, is, which has been mentioned, the legacies of British slave ownership, the reason why we started our investigation through looking at slave owners 
because what we wanted to demonstrate was the ways in which white Britons were tied into the slavery business in very significant ways, far, far more extensive than anybody had previously thought. And this is not just about major slave owners like Edward Long, the man that I'm talking about. It's the people who inherit money in those ways, who've never been to the Caribbean, had nothing to do with the Caribbean, but are living off annuities which turn out to come through slave ownership or through mortgages, through the legal companies, and so on and so forth. So we've established, again, this, what you might call the hinterland of ownership, which involves far more people than the direct named slave owners. And that then takes us in, as I'm saying, to all the auxiliary businesses uh, which are involved in the slavery business and the production of goods for the slavery business. One of the arguments that was made against the abolition of the slave trade and slavery was that the shipping and the sailors who got trained through the organization of the uh, transatlantic slave trade were absolutely crucial to the British Navy. And the British Navy was crucial to British power, which of course it was. And that if you didn't have that trade, then it would have terrible effects on where would your trained sailors come from who would then be working uh, in those moments, in those many, many years of war, which characterize uh, the whole of the 18th and early 19th century. So the question of the presence of black people, which is what, in, in a way, both Richard and Rebecca have focused on, the presence of black people is only one part of this story. The other part of the story is what effect all of this has had on majority populations in France, in the Netherlands, in Britain, in Germany. And the fact that Germany doesn't have an extensive colonial history doesn't mean they didn't have many colonies, but they're involved with slavery, as Rebecca has shown. And if you think about what her example tells us, you know, what Roman law says, according to her legal figure, whose name, of course, I can't remember, um, is that the Africans and the Turks are the ones who are really slaves, according to Roman law. Well, what characterizes the Africans and the Turks? The color of their skin. They're different. They're racialized. So the whole question of race is central to this whole system. All right, I think I might just leave it there. That's quite a few comments to get us going, I hope. Yeah. Thank you very much.